man is the priest of creation, we're participating in Yahweh, he's the primal gardener. Mm -hmm. So when we're called to till and keep the garden of the earth, which is kind of the universal significance of Eden, then we are participating in God's own work. Dr. Matthew Ramage is professor of theology at Benedictine College, where he is co-director of its Center for Integral Ecology. His research and writing concentrates especially on the dialogue between faith and science and stewardship of creation. Listen in as we discuss the Catholic understanding of ecology, Joseph Ratzinger's theology of creation, and the paschal structure of the cosmos. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America, one conversation at a time. From our studios in Atchison, Kansas, these are the Benedictine Dialogues. We'll turn on the news or any social media platform or any YouTube video or any other aspect of, of culture or media right now and everyone is talking about the environment. Um, so I've got with us Dr. Matthew Ramage. Wonderful to have you with us, Matt, and uh, wanted to bring you on to just kind of talk about this, this new, well, I guess it's been around a while, but this phenomena of concern about the environment, uh, and especially how Catholics, Christians ought to understand and, and respond and participate as well in regards to how to deal with this cultural uh, phenomenon. But I guess to just kind of start off the, uh, the conversation, are humans legitimately bad for the environment? That is a common <laughs> question or more accurate allegation that you yes, hear yes. that we are the cancer of the planet. We need to get out of the way and not touch anything. So I think it's interesting that there's positives and negatives, truth and falsity in the claim. Mm -hmm. um, when I teach the subject and we engage in our work here, I begin with creation itself and its goodness and beauty. But you have to get in the nitty gritty of the issues like climate change, like we were doing this morning in my Theology of the Environment class. And uh, there's a lot of debate over that particular issue, obviously, but you look at the numbers and there seems to be a human impact. Mm -hmm. And the issue is though, that with the impact we've had, you do get an accompanying anti-humanism that goes with it, which turns a lot of Catholics, especially off from care for the environment. Sure. So one of our missions is we really need to bring that together, care for the earth and care for the most vulnerable humans that Catholicism is so good at with the pro-life movement. And so we, in the effort to do that, it's easy to be one way or the other, but we wanna bring those both together. And so yes, we're definitely doing some harm. You sure. look at the trash in the ocean. Yes. Uh, you look at the chemicals in our waterways. Uh, you look at the climate. And yet, at least as our popes see it, humans are also a gift to the world to help recover from some of these problems. Yeah, yeah. I immediately think of uh, the famous trash island. It's mm -hmm. like the size of <laughs> vast, vast miles of, of trash in the yeah. ocean. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's kind of one of those things of we're, we're both the, the problem and the answer to the, the issue, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's best for us to, to understand and be uh, as objective as possible about these kinds of things. But one of the things that I know that people tend to shy away from, especially Christians, Catholics, is there's almost a religious atmosphere to this kind of new environmentalism or this religion of environmentalism. Um, how is it that we ought to understand that aspect of it, right? Because I think that turns off a lot of people is that reality of it. They don't call it a religion, but it yeah. sure feels like one. You know, to answer that, I think what popped in my head is G.K. Chesterton's famous answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? And he says, dear sirs, I am. <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. I think we can point the blame at ourselves partly when we have not engaged the culture sufficiently that people go looking for religion. Man is by nature religious. And so you'll bow the knee to something, whether it's politics or what have you. 
And environmentalism, because it's so powerful and because it's such an important thing, it can become a religion for people. So my wife and I have been documenting for years the different elements of religion and environmentalism. Objectively, for good or for ill, uh, it becomes a total way of life. It involves sacrifices. Uh, it has an eschatology, a theory of the end times where we destroy the planet. Religions always have these hallmarks. Um, it has evangelization, really. You need to convince people of this. And those, you know, those are elements you see everywhere. The problem is when you see the Phariseeism creep in, whether in our faith, Judaism, you name the religion, is when you have people that think only they have the truth, they go and they have sort of a self-righteousness mentality to it, and that turns a lot of would-be lovers of creation off. Yeah. The good side is, I have found at least around here, especially at our great college with the students, they just see right through it and they wanna love God and the earth, and frankly, they're not too ideological about it. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's been fascinating and rewarding to have that. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah there's almost a um, bit of a Gnosticism to it, right? That there's this secretive reality of, I, if, if you're not on the same team as I am and fully in, then you just don't know, right? Then yeah. you just don't understand. Yeah. Um, and it, it's funny too, when I, when I think about cultural issues in regard to the, the environment, and it tends to tend towards a more left-leaning crowd, mm -hmm. right? Um, but one of the greatest conservative writers, Roger Scruton, wrote an entire work on the care for the environment, the conservation of, of the environment, right? And yeah. so to me, that's why it rises above a political ideology. And it, it, it necessarily needs to, right? Yeah, like so much of the church, the church yes. is trans-political. We're not of this order. The kingdom's not of this world. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I definitely see that on both sides where this is an issue for this political party or what have you. Thankfully, the popes have been pretty definitive on yeah. this is an issue for the faith. Mm -hmm. uh, and like Francis's entire encyclical, he opens up with the various problems we're causing in creation, but also it's a joyful mystery to be contemplated, he emphasizes. So that the whole thing, right, it, it really is the purview of the church. Frankly, we've fallen down on the job. The popes have done a good job, mm -hmm. but it's up to us to engage that, which is part of what our Center for Integral Ecology is doing at Benedictine. But the idea is that, okay, we are the foot soldiers, we're the front lines. Popes can't solve it all through documents. Mm -hmm. So we have to get our hands dirty and get into these issues to be the voice that, there, that isn't out there. The, the church has a unique voice that says, hey, we're causing these environmental problems. We have resources and creativity to stop them and turn the tide. At the same time, the church is recognizing the dignity of the human person and emphasizing that everybody has a right to life. Now, how do we care for the poor, the unborn, and all the most vulnerable while we work on renewables and whatever you might have in mind to help the earth as a whole? Yeah, yeah. To me, it, it's a great expression of the fact that if environmentalism goes towards anything anti-human, well, now we're not, we're not on the same team anymore, right? That's, that's where we exit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, we're also such a pro-science religion that yeah. this is, part of the answer towards fixing these environmental concerns. Yeah, in fact, uh, I'm a scholar associate of the Society of Catholic Scientists. So I'm a theologian, but I engage in science quite a bit. And last summer, our conference was on uh, environment and climate. And we had people there who weren't Catholic who gave talks. Mm -hmm. And it's another illustration of all truth is of, its whole, of the Holy Spirit. You know, mm -hmm. Aquinas, even if this guy is a secular scholar from MIT, or whether he's Richard Dawkins, the atheist biologist, he may have something to listen to. Mm -hmm. And so we don't silo ourselves into listening only to our group. But as my students and I were just talking about this morning in class, one of the sure signs 
that you're at least on the right track is that you are actually looking at the whole picture and not only listening to your preferred group. Yes. Do you think there's a danger of, particularly with, with maybe Christians, and even on the other side too, of a, of a creeping dualism that either they become to the place where material good in regard to creation is, or in regard to the earth or, or the environment is so good that now we're out or the other side of things yeah. that I'm so you know, important or the spiritual side of things is so much higher that I'm no longer going to care about the physical world. Totally. Yeah. yeah, I think of Pope Francis's Laudato Si is cyclical. I think of Pope Benedict, Pope John Paul, that we contend in some cases to divinize the earth mm. as if the earth is God and we can't touch it. Humans, again, like the cancer, the plague of the earth. Um, and so you had to have organic every single thing you do. On the other hand, I think part of your question you're getting at, I hope, is look, Christians have kept nature at a distance sometimes because we're you know, seeing that as the camp of someone else. Or on the other hand, there's a, a fear that, hey, you know, holiness is in the church. If I attribute too much over here to creation, that might weaken my faith. I've heard that kind of argument. Uh, but really, the church is always both and on that. Uh, you mm -hmm. can go out and find God in your mountain hike or in the river down here uh, in Atchison, but you still go to church on Sunday. It's, mm -hmm. it's not the mm -hmm. same as the sacraments, but it can actually enhance your Christian life. So the dualism you speak of, I don't know, in case anybody watching doesn't know what that is, is the idea that you have kind of a spiritual world and a bodily world, a material world, and usually the spiritual is considered the good one. Mm -hmm. So I, I think you do see that especially, just to get a little controversial if I may, and today with the movements of transgenderism, the body is not you. You are independent of your body, really. Mm -hmm. You manipulate your body at will, but our popes are extremely strong on this. Mm -hmm. uh, Pope Benedict speaks of the body as a gift, and we are part of nature. Man, too, has a nature that must be respected, he says. Mm -hmm. So if we should respect nature, which we should, we should also respect human nature, not put things that are bad for our bodies into them, mm -hmm. etc. So there's another element the church can contribute against a dualism and more towards a holism. Yes. Uh, my wife likes to speak not just of theology of the body, but theology of embodiment. Yeah. That we are creatures who share a, a common family linkage with all, all other creatures on earth, and that we need to find what those laws of humanity are and live by them. Yeah. And one of the things that it's kind of standing out to me as well is um, the, the potential for thinking of the earth as something that is just something to use, right? Not mm -hmm. something to take care of, which is what we see in Genesis. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I love about like St. Albert the Great, Thomas Aquinas, many of these others, is that they saw in their research into the created world as a way of finding more about the attributes and essence of God. Right? And so by taking care of it, not just using it, but rather taking care of it, and that includes using it right, in certain, yeah. in certain circumstances, yeah. but that in so doing, you're actually coming to know and to love God ever more. Yeah. Right? I think immediately of Bonaventure's journey of the mind into God. He walks through the progressive stages by which you rise to contemplation of the Trinity. He begins with the natural world. It's Augustinian, the, the traces or footprints of God there. And so you actually are led deeper into, and it's, it's almost a, a prerequisite as some authors see it, for understanding God is understanding creation itself, how that points you towards him and your difference between other creatures becomes a pointer towards your difference between yourself and God. And then you go into all kinds of examples of how the, the virtues are all interrelated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, 
you care for, I'm thinking of my cat, seems irrelevant to God. But training my children and maybe me to treat my cat better also inculcates the virtue of tenderness, responsibility, and then you, you can transfer that to vulnerable humans. Mm -hmm. And we have chickens and other kinds of things like a little orchard and tending that garden, um, tending the Eden of our own lives helps us to care for the larger world, but it begins right here in our concrete circumstances. Yeah, it also evokes a bit of a, a gratefulness, right? Because you realize what it takes to create the things that, yeah. <laughs> that you have to eat for sustenance and, and the like. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of the, the popes and of course the Augustinian tradition, um, you recently had an article published in a communio journal um, about Benedict XVI. And um, I thought it was absolutely fascinating, especially because I, I never really think of Benedict XVI as an ecologist or someone who particularly has an interest in the environment. Uh, but you really make the case that while everybody knows him as a, a theologian and a philosopher, He's an ecologist as well, and why, in one sense, how, uh, but in another, why maybe is that not as highlighted as it ought to be? Yeah, he kind of became known as the Green Pope during his tenure. He never published a book on it. I've learned in recent years of research and engaging other Catholic lovers of creation that actually the encyclical on the environment that Francis wrote began during Benedict's pontificate. And there's a lot of Benedict theology in it, actually. He's quoted all over the place. Um, so John Paul II really gave us the gift of beginning to engage this subject. Um, sort of a lot of the interaction of faith and science, John Paul initiated mm -hmm. um, from the time he called evolution more than a hypothesis to his World Day, what was it called? Um, World Day of Peace, January 1st, he started giving talks on care for creation. And Benedict and Francis have just continued and developed it. Um, but yeah, so for example, CUA Press has a book called The Garden of God where they compiled just about everything Benedict ever said on the environment. It's a whole book. Wow. And believe me, I researched it. They got <laughs> almost everything. <laughs> One fascinating thing I don't know the answer to, though, is he really didn't talk about it a lot until he became Pope. Hmm. He, like A couple of times in his little in the beginning homilies, he talks about faith science issues and he brings up the issue that man is the parasite of creation hmm. and he's not, he's actually a gift. But it is interesting that Around that time, there were some different synods, some different meetings he went to, but something concrete catalyzed him on this. Interesting. And, and I think part of it is you become pastor of the Universal Church, mm -hmm. and you realize, okay, here are the global issues. I've got to do something about this. That's true, yeah. And he was probably privy to some conversations going on at the UN or something that <laughs> brought some science to light and, and things like that. Do you think some of the concern as well, I mean, I, I always, when I think about Benedict, I always think about the fact that he experienced World War II, right? That yeah. he experienced that horrific time and what we did both to the environment and to each other. Yeah. Um, so anything that becomes anti-human or anti-creation, he probably just has this visceral <laughs> reaction to it, right? So how much of that experience do you think kind of flowed into that as well? I honestly have no idea. Yeah. If you have a hypothesis, let me know. <laughs> uh, I don't know how much that directly did, but certainly between him and John Paul on different countries obviously experiencing the devastation that has to be somewhat relevant to it. I think it definitely undergirded John Paul II mm -hmm. when he's the one that developed the notion of human ecology, mm. that if nature should be respected, there are laws of humanity that we need to respect. Mm -hmm. So things like whether it's contraception or uh, you know doing uh, gross amounts of like, illegal drugs or whatever you name the sin, that that's against human nature just as much as putting any kind of thing like lead in the water is bad for the environment. Mm -hmm. um, I think you see this when they're having the devastation of their particular countries. Um, however, I, I'm just not honestly sure about whether the war experience 
directly did. I need to ponder that. Okay. Yeah, I, I can't let go of it, so I'm so my own hypothesis well, as well. <laughs> if you have ideas, let me know. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah and one of the things that I, I, I'm hearing as well is anything outside of God's divine order, right? That is what we need to be aware of. And yeah. that includes care for creation. That also includes care for human beings and the like. Um, and one of the, the terms that, that you use in that piece is the idea of a covenantal order or a yeah. covenant with the created order. What did Benedict mean by that? So this is what I spent the last three years thinking about and researching mm -hmm. yeah. and trying to live and pray. Uh, I, I came across this line from Benedict when he said that mankind has a covenant with the environment that should mirror the creative love of God. Mm. Somehow we're, we're in covenant with. The first thing that occurred to me, being kind of a lover of Wendell Berry's writings, is there's really no such thing as the environment in the abstract. You're always mm. relating to concrete things. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Barry says, strictly speaking, global thinking is not possible. Mm. You really well, can't yeah. conceive that broadly. Yeah. So, but when you look at it in the details, it's covenant between humans and other creatures. Sure. And then I got to thinking, surely that's in the Bible somewhere. Now, as a person who teaches Pentateuch, I had a vague idea, but I started reading. Yeah. And I got to Genesis 9, and I saw the words that had never struck me before a covenant with you and every living creature. Hmm. And it repeats it several times. God repeats it. And then you see it in Hosea. You see it in various prophets. Uh, there's a covenant mentioned in Job between you and the stones of the field. With hmm. day and night, there's covenant. And so it was just plastered all over Scripture. Mm -hmm. But you know, depending on how you define covenant, there are different types. It's an mm -hmm. exchange of gift between persons. And so how can creation be in covenant with us when they're not conscious like humans are, they don't have free will. Well, to start with, you look at our side of it. We have responsibilities. We have a, a duty towards creation. The catechism even says we owe kindness to animals. Mm -hmm. um, no, we don't think they're subjects of human rights as Catholics, but really there is this tension, which I don't see people usually abuse, but sometimes they do, that we can do whatever we want, right? Because we subdue the earth. Sure. That's a mistaken notion of Genesis, but people take it that way. But if you see covenant, like, oh, well, if you're in covenant with them, you can't just treat them any way whatsoever. Mm -hmm. In fact, the thought I've been having the past couple of months has been, although children are humans and not dogs or crabs or something, you know, little children can't reciprocate either. Mm -hmm. And yet they're in covenant with us. And if they're baptized, they're explicitly in covenant with God. So I think there's something about that, the innocence of the animal, mm. the inability, and, and yeah, a lion might kill you, but fundamentally they're unable to protect themselves mm -hmm. from the broader forces that we've unleashed. And then from their side, I think of Thomas Aquinas. They don't freely choose to love us, um, but by fulfilling their very nature, mm -hmm. they glorify God. Their, their end of the covenant is very simple. Mm -hmm. They just do their acts of whatever creature they are. They're, in their elephantness, yes, or their tortoise hood, or yes. whatever it might be. That's really interesting. You know, one of the things that when I think of the idea of, of covenant is that in in and you see this in JP two as well. In self gift, you become more of yourself, right? Yeah. So you increase in as much as you give away. Mm -hmm. And when I think about, so we are we've now had a dog for two years, first dog I've ever owned in my life. And I noticed the difference between maybe an active versus a passive type of expression of that relationship yeah. that 
it's more of what's happening inside me. There's, there's another weird, because I've never expressed or, or felt sort of the unbridled love of my, my pup, right? Yeah. But now I have, and I kind of get it now, even yeah. though I still have to take care of it, I still have to keep it from biting people, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, in a way, is not actively doing it, it's just of its nature, that it does this yeah. thing, it falls in love with a family, and wants to protect it, and, and reciprocates in that way. Yeah. Um, and that, in a way, is also about me becoming more of myself, because, and as you've experienced, or anyone who, who has had kids, no matter how many you have, every time you have another one, your heart goes poof, even bigger. Mm. That's a whole nother chamber yeah. for it, you know? And I wouldn't put that on the same level as having a dog, there's a yeah. hierarchy there, but yeah. it's becoming more of who I'm called to be as a, as a lover of family and creation and what God wants us to be, right? Yeah, I think that they can be propedutic, they can be preparatory for mm. some of those things. They teach us habits, they teach us love, um, you know, Pope Francis kind of got himself into hot water in the public some time back when he said, you shouldn't treat your animals as other humans. Mm. Because you do see this out oh, there, yeah. right? Like you, they become a substitute yes. and you don't have kids. It's easy to have that happen. And, but especially for those who, like think of the elderly who don't have anyone around them. Uh, it, it's a, a massive benefit to them mm -hmm. uh, to have this companionship. And, and each one reflects God in a different way. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, whether it's the cats and their indecisiveness, which I don't know how that reflects God, but <laughs> the fact that they're just constantly purring and coming up to you and want to be in relationship to the, the giddiness of dogs. You know? yes, and yes. then there's the weird ones like, I don't have a pet butterfly, but fathers like St. Basil point to the butterfly going in its cocoon mm. and emerging almost as a new creature, but really the same creature, mm -hmm. same DNA is there. It has an image for resurrection. You go on the ground, you go in your chrysalis and you emerge transformed. Yeah. Yeah. And then you see it's just plastered throughout the whole of Scripture. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of you having to die and rise as a new creature. And it's almost like a star differs from star in glory. So different is the one from the other. And yet your resurrected body, though, dare we say, infinitely more glorious, is still you. Mm -hmm. Or Jesus and John, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it doesn't bear fruit. Mm -hmm. He's looking at nature. He's looking at, okay, so this thing dies, the mother plant dies at least, and it goes down the ground, it has to break apart, and then you get this brand new life of a, of a thing that looks almost nothing like the original, but is of this infinitely higher plane. So I, I love the kind of the nature mysticism that Christ himself mirrors, hey, the whole world points to me mm -hmm. in my Paschal mystery. That's amazing. Have you ever desired a deeper understanding of the life of Jesus? Check out The Extraordinary Story with Tom Hoops. This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. The Extraordinary Story has been featured in The Loop, Alatea, Our Sunday Visitor, and Relevant Radio. You can listen to The Extraordinary Story on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And now, back to the show. And another term that you used in, in the piece as well is the idea of um, dominion of love. Yeah. You know, and uh, maybe explain a little bit about that as well. Yeah, in there, I was trying to interact with the fact that Genesis says, subdue the earth, till, keep, exercise dominion. 
And it's easy to mistake that as be a tyrant. Mm -hmm. And so I, I've think, thankfully, by the grace of God, I've found a number of other thinkers who preceded me who've written quite beautifully on this. But one way I like to think about it is if you have dominion over your company, you're not going to treat it however you want. You're not going to trash it. You actually have more responsibility mm -hmm. because you love it due to the fact that your father bequeathed it to you. And, and so it's, since you're in the family, then you want to treat it even more respectfully and increase it. So I think that relates to creation quite well as, okay, man is the CEO. I don't like the analogy, sure. but there we go. <laughs> man is the CEO. We're in charge. We're the image of God, which in the ancient world was the king's representative on earth. Mm -hmm. So we are the king, Yahweh's representative on earth, and we reflect the Trinity in the world and therefore have a greater responsibility. And, and frankly, Francis, he nails this too. He says, if man was not different from other creatures, we should not be expected to have responsibility. Mm. And he doesn't tell you this explicitly, but he's engaging the argument that man's just another creature, mm -hmm. just another species, therefore no more rights for humans than anything else. Mm -hmm. But Francis really nails it that because of our dignity, we have that responsibility. Yeah, and it also, I think, allows for, um, so Russell Kirk always says, for every duty comes with responsibility, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and that includes duty towards you. There's a responsibility that's a response to that. But then also the response to the dignified nature of who we are, there's a responsibility and a duty that goes along with that, right? Um, and in a way, it shows that human beings really are the crown of creation. I mean, we, we really were given this opportunity to participate in the active nature of God, right? That we yeah. are part of that. So when it becomes this political ideology of being able to take it, it's so much higher or maybe deeper, whichever way you want to go yeah. uh, with that explanation, but you're participating in something that's an attribute of God himself when you're helping to take care of creation. Yeah, in fact, I love the Old Testament language here, the till and keep, avad and shamar mm. of Genesis 2 is the language of Leviticus for priestly duties at the tabernacle. Mm. So we are priests, and of course there's the sacramental priesthood, which is of a different order, but the church is firmly in teaching that we all are priests, prophets, and kings. So we in our kind of ordinary universal priesthood, the faithful, we offer the world to God, mm. like Vatican II says. And how we do that is treating it with respect by elevating it even, um, by bringing creatures to their goal. Uh, and that's language that in the secular world is not too appreciated by the church. So in other words, creatures have their own dignity. This is something me and my wife talk a lot about. Okay, that gazelle in Africa is not, does not need me to achieve its natural goal. But one of my favorite things since we're in the Casey region is smoking pork. Mm -hmm. You know, treat the pig with dignity. You let the pig live a, a decent, natural life, achieve its goal. When you smoke that pig, as I see it personally, you're, you're doing something beautiful with that pig. Mm. You're doing art, yeah. I, I think, yeah. uh, when you have Kansas City-style ribs. And, and there's a role for vegetarianism and stuff, okay, perhaps. But the point there is that the church allows the eating of meat. Mm -hmm. The church wants us, though, to treat the animals with dignity. So I think an example is you shouldn't just take a very young animal and kill it, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the Old Testament speaks of not boiling the kid in its mother's milk. There mm -hmm. are certain laws which are beyond the pale. Mm -hmm. you, you can't do that to the creature. And the church doesn't have a whole catalog of them, mm -hmm. but they're, they're there. So it's, I think it's a pretty neat application of man is the priest of creation. We're participating in Yahweh. He's the primal gardener. Mm -hmm. So when we're called to till and keep the garden of the earth, which is 
kind of the universal significance of Eden, then we are participating in God's own work. Yeah, I never really experienced that in a real way until I um, went out with some hunters and saw them actually kill the deer after they've shot it. Yeah. That there's a dignified way of doing it so that it doesn't suffer as much yeah. as possible, right? Yeah. And to think of people who are, they're out in the woods, they're getting bloody, you know, with the deer meat, they're taking care of in that way. It's a gritty kind of dirty reality. But even within that, there's this beautiful dignified side of things. My, my own grandmother taught me how to kill chickens and, and yeah. how to you know, defeather them and how to do so so that they don't suffer, so that they don't end up running around and you know, going crazy if you cut their heads off, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so in a way, even in their death, and this is where we'll get into maybe the, the Paschal Mystery side of things, there's a dignity expressed that's beautiful actually, even though it's bloody, even though it's, it's kind of dirty. Yeah, you know? I don't even like killing fish and flaying fish, yeah. but yeah. it's, first of all, they stink. And, and it, but that's part of the point, actually, is even the nitty gritty mm -hmm. is part of this participation in the sacrifice and of self gift. And yeah, when it comes to the treatment of animals, I think there's something sacred about encountering their deaths. Mm -hmm. um, so I think of, well, frankly, the one that pops in my mind is I brought a group to India and we did Catholic India. Mm. And we also, as a church and world religions class, we looked at other sites we observed, didn't worship. But we went on the Ganges River and they did cremations there. Mm. And even there, okay, this is not environment, but it's related. This is natural religion. There is an encounter with the sacred anytime you encounter death. Hmm. And I think this applies to death of animals. There's a responsibility you encounter with that. There's a certain haunting element. And I like Norman Versba. He's a contemporary author. He says that the failure to engage death in relation to animals is a failure of incarnational nerve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, and I, it's kind of like what we talked about before this, um, sitting down for this interview is God acts within a lot of the kind of dirtiness, the, the bloodiness of, of human beings. And I, I mentioned, you know, one of my favorite stories of Christ is when he heals the blind man with, he spits in the soil and, soil and rubs it in his eyes. I mean, it would have to be a divine person rubbing spit and dirt in my eyes for me to yeah. be like, this is amazing, you know? Um, and it, but it also reminds me of, especially in the Old Testament, when you see the use of animals in the covenantal um, ritual sacrifices. Yeah. How, how ought we understand, I mean, there are, you know, stories of splitting birds in half and men walking between them as a covenant between, yeah. between tribes that's now generational, you know? Yeah. Uh, and in so doing, we are doing it in the eyes of God. So if this ever happens, this is us, right? This is what yeah. that, that means. Mm -hmm. How does that kind of uh, relate or, or express what we're talking about in regard to this kind of covenantal relationship? Yeah, I think you're echoing Abraham there. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't help but comment on the spit too though, because mm -hmm. as a biblical theologian, I have to point out that this is Christ doing a new creation. He's initiated a new mm -hmm. creation. He, he is putting himself in the place of Yahweh here, molding Adam, right? Yeah. And, we see that, for example, in Caravaggio's Call of yes. Matthew, where he's echoing Michelangelo's creation of Adam. So there's that, and the sacraments working through the nitty gritty, even though God presumably could snap his fingers and save us, he wants to work through our proper nature and allow us to be co-redeemers and instruments of his grace. So with regard to, I think of those Abraham sacrifices and the animals, I, I, the way I see it, I think this is in the old covenant, divine pedagogy, Irenaeus would say. Um, Aquinas would say it's the Old Testament participation in the sacraments. It's all ultimately the grace of Christ, but it's their way of understanding that sacrifice 
from even good things on earth is to say you put God first, and then also it inserts you into the structure of the universe, which conscious or not, all things have to die. And everything by its very nature, Aquinas would say, is, is going to fulfill this. It's a composite being, so it's going to break apart. I think in a more communio language, same substance, John Paul, Benedict, they would say, look, the creation is Paschal. Paschal mystery, cross, death, resurrection, it's built into it. Mm. Because when you read Colossians or Ephesians, all creation is created in Christ, for Christ. John 1, it's all through this same logos. And so as fathers like St. Gregory of Nazianzen or Gregory of Nyssa or Maximus the Confessor is probably my favorite, say the logos is reflected in the many logoi. In other words, the plural, every creature reflects God and the ideas of those creatures exist in him eternally so that he comes forth into time in these creatures and they're clearly are different from him and yet they're called to reunion. But sacrifice is this means by which they come back to themselves in some sense, mm. return to the divine source. And it, can I add a little Balthazar in here? Um, Hunter's von Balthazar speaks of the Trinity, God doesn't suffer in Orthodox theology, God doesn't change. But there's something about human suffering that allows us to share in the self-gift that exists on an infinitely higher plane in the Trinity. So we don't want to suffer. John Paul speaks about in his encyclical letter on suffering. But nevertheless, it allows us to give ourselves. Hmm. So as, as finite creatures who aren't in fact God, it's that constant reminder, whatever pain I have this day, that A, everything I have is a gift and I'm called to give that back and offer it up and bring other people and all of creation with me. Wow, yeah. I think, uh, so to think of this in regard to like, you mentioned the idea of rhythm and, and logic of the ecology or of the created order. Would you say then that the, the rhythm and logic is inherently paschal? Like that, that's what we're recognizing when we see things used in their proper order. Yeah, I, I'm firmly of that conviction because you think about soil. Soil is not good unless it has death in it. Hmm. Uh, and Aquinas never talked about that to my knowledge, but no one has ever read all of Aquinas. <laughs> but um, it, it, he says that of creatures, like they, they have to, right? And he, he has man as exempt from that originally before sin. But no, you don't have soil unless it has death. and you don't have a continually flourishing body unless you have death and renewal of cells. It's so everywhere you look, death gives life. And it's remarkable, or you think the history of life. We wouldn't be here probably unless the dinosaurs had died out mm -hmm. 60, 60, about 66 million years ago. So it's, it's interesting and remarkable. I love walking in the footsteps of dinosaurs in Utah. You look down and think, I praise you, Lord, for how this dinosaur reflects you. And I'm thankful it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> You know, so I think it's written everywhere you look into creation and for us to live, things have to die. Yeah. Fascinating. And yeah, and another thing we were kind of talked about before uh, this conversation is the reflections of that exact aspect of the created order that you find even in pagan religions that um, they took it to the level of even human sacrifice, but there yeah. was this, this desire, that, and it, it's across the world, you know, but that happened prior to Christianity coming onto the, the scene. And, um, but there's, there's this natural desire to, to kill, die, and offer up. Yeah. Um, and 
I guess in, in, its, in its perfection, we see that in Christ, right? That, yeah. that, that is what we're there to participate in. But what is that? What is that in us that God's placed in our hearts Yeah, <laughs> that, that finds its way, you know, in these various expressions? Right. I think it's the Trinity. Mm. And it's, it's, you see that self-gift, Father, Son, totally pouring themselves out, out to each other to spirate the Holy Spirit. You see it in, as John Paul would say, in marriage, theology of the body, the husband and wife pouring themselves out if the time is right and conditions are there, it creates a third person. Mm. Um, so I, I think that's what they're looking for. And then I, I'm thinking of Chesterton here when he talks about in his everlasting man of people going to the gods or the demons. And people look for simplistic shortcut answers. They may be well-intended, who knows, but offering a human or a goat doesn't require you to necessarily offer yourself. Uh, and even the positive ones, like offer your own child, part of what Genesis is teaching in chapter 22 with Abraham and Isaac is it's in part a revealed teaching that we had, I don't want human sacrifice, hmm. that were, was the mainstream practice. Mm -hmm. So it, it's kind of like in the early stages of the human race, Gregory the Great would say, we were like an in infancy spiritually. Hmm. And yeah, they may have thought that God needed this or that God's demanded this. And they were really searching for something real, but it turns out like we finally discover after the exile and a Jew's home is torn apart, the Holy Land is ripped from them, is that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So I think it's fascinating that yes, we could eat meat, but in the church, it's an unbloody sacrifice. Christ sacrificed himself once and for all, and we enter into that every mass, but God does not need bulls and goats anymore mm -hmm. uh, because we have now achieved the fullness of faith. And then we have to just enter into it. Mm -hmm. See, to me, that adds a whole other level of, you know, when, when people talk about care for the environment, immediately you think of something as simple as recycling or these other things. But at a whole other level, you're talking about ontology, you're talking about yeah. telos, you're talking yeah. about a divine created order yeah. that's simply throwing the milk jug in the recycling bin as opposed to, you know, the trash. Yeah. You're participating in that in that small way. And granted, that's a very small, you know, easy way, which I think we should all be doing. Yeah. But to think in those terms just rises so much above the political ideology and everything. And I really hope our, our listeners are hearing it in that way of, we're not just asking for us to care for creation for the simple fact of creation itself. It's for creation ourselves and ultimately proper worship, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what we're participating in. Exactly, that's where Benedict XVI says, this whole awareness calls for new forms of life. Mm. We have to change our lifestyle. It helps me to think about as a kind of pro-life Catholic, if you tell someone, guess what? Contraception violates God's plan for man. That's not an easy thing to hear. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe your viewers don't even know much about that. It's a, it's a lifestyle change and not everybody can have seven kids like I do, you know? Mm -hmm. Not everybody's wife can, can stay at home and have that blessing, right? But then you think, okay, well, how does this apply? I'm always doing self-introspection. Well, what kind of lifestyle change would it require if I realized oh yeah, I can't just have unbridled capitalism. I can't mm -hmm. just order every last thing on Amazon I want. Maybe I need to look into whether that particular product was made by Uyghur slave labor in mm. China. And was this or that thing incorporated and funded by Planned Parenthood funding abortion? And there's a whole lot that goes in there that my students are like, man, I'm in a despair, you know? Mm -hmm. And I try to remind them, all you can do is your little life here. It's the small things with great love. Mm -hmm. And I love how Laudato Si by Pope Francis actually ends with a Theresian note. It's small things. And I know people made fun of him when he said this, but he's 100% right in my opinion. Sometimes you just 
turn the thermostat a degree or two. Mm -hmm. It's like, you're not gonna save the world, but you might save your own soul by inculcating habits hmm. that lead to greater virtue. And I think of composting, not everybody has to compost mm -hmm. probably, but there's something about that. We make the extra effort to walk outside, put the banana peels, put the coffee grounds in there, and over a few months it magically turns to dirt that our basil grows in. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're instantiating this paschal rhythm, the death of that particular thing led to new life. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, a whole beauty of spirituality where it could be tempting to make it its own religion. Yeah. And then you're, you have to remember, oh yeah, this comes from God, really. This is always pointing back to Christ. And yeah. in fact, the liturgy traditionally is excellent about this. I mean, we have it in the liturgical seasons. Uh, and so there's a way to wed those two together that nature points to God and our worship is actually aided by knowing and being immersed in nature. Yeah, and see, to me that offers, um, you know, one of the things I lament is the fact that not everybody, gets, not everybody gets to have a garden, not everybody gets to participate and really feel the soil and, and feel animals that they're raising that eventually they might eat themselves. Yeah. Um, but in a way you are participating and I, and I would hope that most people when they think about the environment, they're not going to think that like when Saruman ripped down the trees, he was a hero for doing yeah. so. It's like, no, we, we should all want a healthy environment. And so you, you mentioned, I was actually gonna be a little bit of a devil's advocate in regard to like capitalism and the rise of technology and these yeah. things. What would be your answer to someone who um, is, is very, and I, I'm pro-capitalism, I'm pro-business, you know, yeah. um, in the proper sense, in the proper yeah. order. Um, but what would be some advice or some, some thoughts you might share with someone who is in the business world, maybe especially in the technology world or in the manufacturing world, yeah. on, on what is the mindset of someone who is running those companies or working at a company yeah, like that? Yeah, the first thing that popped in my mind is Benedict XVI called technology a response to God's command to till and keep the earth. Mm. It's actually a, a neutral gift in, in itself. It could be bad or good, depending on what you do with it. But it's actually, a, it's something that you can use for the good. So the creative solutions we need to have, you know, this is kind of a, a political point too, but the church's approach is subsidiarity, mm. where you work at the local level, you can escalate it to higher government levels if you need to. But we need, say, at college, I was telling my students, we need you engineers to graduate, go innovate, be principally minded Catholic engineers, and that's how you're gonna transform the world. And for those of you who are just theologians like me and not gonna innovate anything, raise your kids right, you know, and your parish level make a difference. So there's always something in there that you can do. Um, but as far as the, the capitalism thing goes, this is so hard, it's always a prudential judgment. Sure. But I don't know, I think of a chiropractor advice to me one time, it was like the 80-20 rule, do something right 20% of the time. Yeah. It, maybe it should be more than that. Like I have not ceased my Amazon membership, mm -hmm. but can I combine orders? Mm -hmm. Can I ask the question of whether I really need that thing? Uh, you know, can I go to Van Dyke's, the local grocery store, to buy my meat? Mm -hmm. Which, incidentally, the ham is cheaper there than Walmart. <laughs> uh, and sometimes it's a sacrifice, though. I don't want to pay the local guy's price. Mm -hmm. But you know where it came from. You know, you know what it's for. And it's not just food, though, right? It's the, the whole way of life. So again, I tell the students, look, you can't do everything in your despair. Mm -hmm. So you, you just have to, what is God calling me to do? Right? Little changes I can make now, like St. Therese would say, little things with great love. Yeah, that's a 
perfect sort of final thought uh, is little things with great love in regard to this. And I really hope our, our viewers learned a lot from this. I really hope that, especially in regard to you know, the kind of debating that goes back and forth between left and right in regard to the environment, realizing that it is a true concern and it is something that we should be participating in as human beings, but especially as Catholics. And it's really part of a higher calling that we're talking about. I mean, we started off on just environment and got all the way down to the Paschal mystery of the, <laughs> of the created order. So we're talking about something much deeper than that. So, um, well, Matt, I really appreciate your time. And uh, this was a fantastic conversation. I'm sure we'll have you back very regularly to talk about some other topics, but I really appreciate it. Sounds good. Jared, good time. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you all for listening and uh, God bless. We hope you enjoyed the Benedictine Dialogues, a production of Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. To catch all the latest and support our growing platform, visit media.benedictine.edu. And be sure to recommend this show to your friends and family. Help us to transform culture in America, one conversation at a time.